This is a special episode of the Hakai Magazine Audio Edition. Octopus cognition expert Piero Amadio and writer Ferris Jaber join host Adrian Mason for a captivating conversation about the social lives of octopuses. Can these animals form bonds with each other or with humans? Listen in. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for our online event, The Social Lives of Octopuses. I'm Adrienne Mason, and I'm managing editor of Hakai Magazine. And I'm joined today by Piero Amadio and Ferris Jaber, who I'll introduce in uh, just a moment. Um, just in case you came to us because of your interest in octopus and not because you knew anything about Hakai Magazine, I'll just give you a little bit of a intro to the magazine. Um, we are an online magazine that publishes stories on science and society and coastal and marine ecosystems. Uh, we publish a story Monday to Friday, most uh, almost um, with a few exceptions. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, it's all online. If you um, so you can just go to the website, hakaimagazine.com. Um, but if you want uh, sort of a once a week um, look at what's happening, can, I recommend that you sign up for our newsletter that comes out Friday morning. It tells us stories that are came out that week um, and other added content. So it's a great way to keep um, in touch with what's happening. Um, so just a bit about the event. We'll be chatting about octopus intelligence how they perceive their world, how they interact with one another. And we'll dig in a little bit to as to how they might be interacting with, with people and how we interpret those um, interactions or should interpret them or can interpret them. Um, and that's something that I think is intriguing a lot of people by, um, um, it's on a lot of people's minds and we have a lot of registrants today, over 430 as of um, when we just, um, opened up. So I'm looking forward to uh, this great discussion. Um, just some mechanics. If you uh, will chat for about 30 minutes and both Ferris and I will ask uh, questions and, and Piero, you can ask us questions too, if you want. <laughs> and, um, and then there'll be about 15 minutes or so for questions. So if you do have a question, there's a Q&A function at the bottom of the, the Zoom screen, as I'm sure everybody knows, don't use the chat function, just use the Q&A. And somebody is monitoring the questions for me. So I'll look away periodically. I'm just looking at another screen to, to catch them. Um, and please try to keep the questions short so that we can try to get as many uh, in as possible. And we will try to answer as many as we can. And sometimes uh, for those we've missed, we try to follow up in um, a subsequent newsletter. I can't promise it, but we may have a chance to answer a few extra questions in next week's newsletter or the week, one that follows. And finally, um, the event is being recorded and it will be on YouTube. So if you want to watch it later again, or you have to leave early or you want to share it with somebody, it will be available um, not too long after um, we're finished. All right, so let's, I'll introduce our guests. So uh, Piero Amadio is an early career biologist with a broad interest in the study of the behavior and cognition of non-human animals. He has worked on a variety of species and topics from learning and camouflage in the octopus to tool use in jays and nest building in orangutans. 
Piero is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Anton Dorn Zoological Station in Italy, where he investigates cognitive evolution in cephalopods, so octopus, cuttlefish, and squid. And he is also a National Geographic explorer, and he's leading the first scientific expedition to study the larger striped Pacific octopus, COVID allowing, we were just chatting about that, uh, which is an elusive and highly social species of octopus. And I think we'll be talking a bit about more about that animal. Um, yeah, so he'll hopefully get to see them in the wild soon. <laughs> And Ferris Jaber, who wrote our future story, Can We Really Be Friends with Octopus, uh, is the, the story that spurred this event. Uh, Ferris is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Scientific American. Um, aside from Hakai, he's also written for many outlets, including The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's Wired, Outside McSweeney, and many others. And he's currently writing a book about the evolution or co-evolution of Earth and life, which will be published by Random House. So welcome to both of you, and thanks for agreeing to enlighten us on Octopus today. So, um, Ferris, I think I'll start with you. So can, tell us how you came to write this story and what intrigued you about the topic. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, like a lot of people, I was really fascinated by the Netflix documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Um, and, you know, that details the relationship between the filmmaker Craig Foster and this octopus that he follows around for a year um, and really gives us an intimate portrait um, of her life. But I was particularly struck by the interactions between Foster and the octopus. Um, you know, I was used to seeing people bond with mammals or birds in documentaries or on TV, but I didn't know that type of interaction was possible um, with an octopus. And that really got me interested in whether other people had had similar experiences and also, you know, what we could say about octopus social behavior in and amongst themselves. Um, so that kind of set me on a journey of, you know, trying to learn more about um, what does it mean for an octopus to be social and what can we say about that? Great, thanks. And um, a lot of the challenge of interpreting interactions between other animals and, and between amongst themselves and also with us is that we only have our way of interpreting the world. So Piero, can you tell us a little bit about how octopus perceive their world? How do they learn about and um, explore their world and interact with one another? Yeah, sure. So as you said, it's really important to take into account the way in which the species perceive the world in order to interpret their behavior. And we sometimes tend to assume that other species have the same way of perceive the world, but it's not always the case. And for octopuses, there are two uh, key uh, channels. The first one is the vision. Um, it's very unusual for mollusks to have such a good vision as the octopus or the cuttlefish or the squid, the other cephalopods, but they do have it. And it's very likely it evolved for anti-predatory purpose. So in order to detect other animal that may feed on them. And it's really intriguing because octopuses are, they do not perceive color, but they, so they are colorblind, but they can perceive polarized light. So they have a kind of very complex, but different from the vertebrate, from the human kind of vision. And they use it again for anti-variety purpose, but, but also for communicating with other animals. If you think about the complex visual display that these animals can, can exhibit, maybe we will talk about uh, later. And then the second key channel is the, um, the capability of perceiving the environment through cameo tactile information. 
So octopuses use their arms and their sucker to explore object and the world. So they acquire uh, simultaneously chemical information about what they are touching, what they are interacting with. And so for instance, is this food or is this like a random object I, I really don't care about? And information about the material, the, the chemical properties of the, of the object. So their way of perceiving stuff is to touch them. And this is also really important for feeding. So there's many species of octopuses that feed by uh, inserting their arms into crevices and exploring almost blindly for food. So they, it's really important for them to feel the, the prey or the potential food by, with, with their arms. And so this to the vision and this chemiotactile information are the two main way in which octopus can build a perception and image about the, the world that is around. Great, so very, very different from, yeah. from us. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. Um, also, Pierre, how do we measure um, or define octopus intelligence? Like, how do you study it? What, as a researcher, how do you start to figure that out? So intelligence is really fascinating as cognition in general, because it's something you cannot um, measure directly. You do not have like a meter or a, any kind of uh, machine that can give you a number about how smart is a species. And this is, um, this is for every species, including human. So usually there's like a two complementary approach. One that is focusing on the behavior so you use the behavior as a window into the, cogn the cognition. And the other approach is by looking at the, at the brain. So for instance, there's many uh, proxies that are used. They, they are supposed to measure somehow the level of, of intelligence, for instance, by looking at the size of the brain as a whole um, or some area inside the brain, for instance, in mammals, the, the cortex, so the area that is supposed to be involved in the most um, complex uh, cognitive process can be a proxy about intelligence. But the behavior as well. So the idea is that by conducting experiment that may uh, test for different cognitive mechanisms, we can test if a behavior that appear quite complex is actually uh, underpinned by an equally complex cognitive process. Sometimes a behavior that is complex is not actually evidence of superb intelligence. It can be something that is uh, innate, can be something that is acquired through very simple mechanisms. But if you look at the behavior, you think, wow, this species is so smart, but it's tricky. And uh, you need uh, like a lot of tests and in order to rule out alternative explanation for the, for the behavior. And this is for in general and for octopus, of course, you need to take into account what we said earlier. So the way in which the animal perceive the world and design or adapt experiment for the, the, the particular species. Uh, you do not, cannot necessarily use a paradigm that worked with chimps you cannot usually use uh, directly on the octopus probably. But if you adapt the, par the paradigm, can add like similar results uh, for the species you are interested in. Can you give an example of, a, you said that uh, some things that look very complex are actually quite simple. Can you give us an example? Yeah. So for instance, the, um, 
the behavior that is really iconic. So the, the, the Indonesian octopus that use the coconut shell to build the shelter and they can pile up the coconut shell and bring it around. So at the moment, this behavior has only been observed in the wild. So there's sporadic observation suggesting that this animal can do this. But we have no idea about the cognitive process underlying this behavior because the, 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 these have never been tested in, in, uh, in the lab. So this behavior could be the expression of some kind of predisposition of the octopus to use uh, shell-like object to arrange it like, like, um, like a den. It could be some kind of uh, behavior that is learned. So during the lifespan, some individuals realize that they could also bring this, uh, this object around and this is very interesting because you can use it, uh, the shelter later on, or in theory could also be um, a behavior underpinned by more complex processes like some kind of planning for the future. At the moment, I do not need to uh, a shelter because there's no predator around, but maybe in the future there will be a predator. So if I, if I bring this object around, it may become handy later on. But there are three, at the moment, these are three different contrasting hypotheses, but in, in, without the testing, we, don't, we do not know whether this behavior is actually uh, evidence of complex cognition or rather is just like a very complex behavior. Right, okay, thank you, that's good. Um, okay, Ferris, uh, so in researching the story, you talked to researchers and read studies about some octopus and, and generally octopus, I think, were thought to be quite solitary, um, but that show some level of social behavior or social interaction, sociability, however you want to describe that. Can you give us a few examples of what, um, what you uh, unearthed? Yeah, so like you said, there's long been this perception of the octopus as a really solitary, even an antisocial creature. One octopus expert told me the running joke is that if two octopuses meet in the wild, either they're going to mate or they're going to try and eat each other. <laughs> but in the past decade or so, there's been increasing evidence that at least some octopus species are social at least some of the time. One really interesting one is called the larger Pacific striped octopus. And we know from lab studies that they um, they share dens, which is quite unusual for octopuses. They mate beak to beak. Um, the females will brood multiple times instead of just once. And they don't seem to show any signs of cannibalism. Um, and then off the coast of Australia, scientists have found a couple sites that they've called Octlantis and Octopolis, where about a dozen or so octopuses will routinely gather um, on the seafloor in scallop beds, and they'll interact with each other, they'll mate, they'll fight, they'll kind of explore each other. Um, so that's been a really interesting recent discovery. Um, and then we also have been sort of seeing increasing stories from divers and aquarists and octopus caretakers about really interesting um, interactions between octopuses and people. Um, and kind of in that same interspecies vein, we also know that octopuses, some octopuses can form cooperative hunting parties with fish. So there are these really interesting interactions where, you know, certain coral reef fish will do headstands over rock crevices where there might be some little prey hiding in there. The octopus can reach down in there with one of its arms, try to flush out the prey. Maybe the octopus gets a meal, maybe the little fish escapes and the other fish get a meal. But working together like that, they both have a you know, higher chance of success. So those are sort of some of the, the main examples that we've seen. 
And Piero, you're hoping to go study the the larger striped octopus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I actually because of the COVID, we had to postpone the field work now a couple of times, and I hope it's going to be 2022 is going to be the year. And yeah, I'm really excited because of the, as Ferry said, there's like some unique feature of this animal. And um, in order, so the possibility of watching this animal in the wild is something that can give us a lot of information and insight into the life history and social behavior of this animal. And in theory, it, it would also allow to make some comparison about the cognition of more social, let's say social species and less social species that can be also really important in order to build uh, an hypothesis for the evolution of cognition in, uh, in this animal. And that kind of leads into a question that um, I had for Piero. You know, when we think about all the different types of animals that we refer to as social, it seems to me there's really different kinds. You know, like social insects like ants and bees and wasps are social in a very different way from, you know, say chimpanzees um, or dolphins or wolves or other mammals. And it, the octopus to me doesn't really seem to fit in either of those models. You know, it seems to be kind of different. And I'm curious, you know, how do you think of the octopus in terms of its social behavior? Like, what does it really mean to say that an animal is social? And do you think we can fit the octopus into an existing framework or is it is it too special? Uh, well, it's really an interesting question. The point is that you, in biology, you often have a problem with definition. You, you also always have exception. And um, of course, the sociality of social insect, it's very different from the sociality of chimpanzees or even, I don't know, birds. So in birds, there's many birds where social relationships are really important, but the, the bond with the pair mate, it's the, the key bond in their lives. While for chimps or dolphins, for instance, there's many different bonds that are vital for their survival and their so it's really tricky to give like a, a unique uh, definition for social behavior. And another thing that is really important to consider is that sometimes we tend to classify a species with some label. So they are social or non-social, but then the key point is about the population. So even within a species, you can have a lot of variation depending on the local environment. And this is often something that everyone, all the researchers know, but for the sake of uh, brevity or clarity, you tend to use like the same one, one label. And I think the octopus is not special about this. So there's the site in Australia, and there's also some site in the north of Spain where octopus vulgaris, so the common octopus has been found in high density, are site characterized by uh, abundant food for the octopuses, but dance that are rare and when they are available they are clumped in 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 the same location so perhaps this kind of situation when you have a lot of food but the shelter that is as valuable as food it's available in, in a restricted area the social tolerance of this animal can increase and this means you can find octopus living together but this does not mean that the the complexity of their social relationship does necessarily will go high. So you can have like individuals that tolerate each other. They may have even some kind of 
relationship in the sense that there, if there's a bigger octopus, maybe this guy is dominant over the, the one living nearby. But the complexity of the bone that you can see in the octopus is probably not comparable to that you can see in a mammal or in a social insect, for instance. So it's uh, so in this sense, octopuses are special, but not that special. It's something that is variability within population. It's something that you can find in, in every species. Yeah, I think that's a good point, the diversity between species, but also within a single species. You know, you're going to have very different personality traits among individuals. And it seems to me that, um, you know, as far as we can tell, octopuses are not hardwired for the same kind of sociability that has evolved over you know, millions of years in mammals, for example. But they do seem to sort of have this latent capacity to, as you were saying, like in certain circumstances, certain types of social behaviors can be elicited or come to the service. Um, and some scientists have proposed that, you know, complex social lives are maybe one of the engines that drives certain types of high intelligence because animals have to keep track of all these different relationships that are changing all the time. And that would, you know, uh, favor animals that have higher intelligence to be able to do that. Um, but I'm wondering if in the case of the octopus, since it doesn't have that kind of evolutionary history, do you think that, you know, instead it's almost the opposite situation where the, the kind of social behaviors we're seeing are arising from you know, it's it's just high intelligence rather than the other way around. It is possible, but it's also possible that the different kind of social challenge has uh, in a way fostered um, more complex cognition in this animal. That is, so this animal, they, as, as we said earlier, they live, they tend to live one or two years, so they have a really short lifespan and most of them has, uh, have a single reproductive window. So they do not have like a lot of time to, um, to like improve their mating success. And, they, and there's a lot of challenges. They have to compete with rival. They have to, there's the risk of being cannibalized by the, the partner of other individual. So it is possible that it is not the need to create long lasting and complex social bond, but the need to navigate this really complex and uh, dense uh, temporal window in which they have to reproduce. That is the, 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 the key thing for an individual. At the end, at the end of the day, if you, if you couldn't reproduce, uh, you couldn't leave your, you let your gene to, to go on. So it is possible that these kind of challenges have, has, uh, have played a role in the cognitive evolution of this guy. And of course, there, there's going to be other equally important, if not more important, um, challenge that are the predatory ones and the ecological complexity of their niches. So it is possible that this kind of social challenge may, may have acted as an additional uh, uh, pressure fostering the complexity of, of these guys. Or, as you said, it is possible that they evolved some kind of cognitive uh, complexity and then as a result, they could exploit, for instance, the cooperative uh, hunting with, with other individual. It could be some kind of an effect about the, so it's, it's a second step in the in their evolution. Okay, that's great. Well, it, it's, it's um, clearly they're seeing their world uh, very differently than we are exploring their world and interacting amongst themselves. So, 
this sort of brings us to the point of um, where Ferris described at the beginning how he got interested into the story is this whole how we interpret these relationships, uh, interactions between humans and um, an octopus. How can we even do this if we have such fundamentally different biology? We are perceiving the, the world um, around us. It's, you know, it's very challenging. Um, and especially when we only see the world through our lens. So of course we're gonna layer be quite anthropomorphic and is it reaching out to touch me or is it just trying to figure out what I am as you explain, like they're, they're so tactile and all these neurons in their, in their arms and, and everything. So uh, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Um, so Ferris, tell us about some of the other um, ex, um, things that uh, people, uh, examples that you found of people having uh, what they felt were, you know, strong interactions or bonds, however you want to describe it with octopus. Yeah. So the, you know, of course, the most famous recent example is Craig Foster and my octopus teacher and, and his particular relationship. But I found there's um, a diver named Alora Kuistra who had a somewhat similar experience with a small octopus off the coast of Belize. And she interacted with this octopus over a period of several months. Um, and he, he even learned how to open jars to get, you know, little snacks she put in there, interacted with her, um, her hands, her fingers, her body. Um, and at one point, it seemed like he was essentially pulling her towards a log and, you know, so to speak, trying to get her to help him push the log over, roll it over so he could reach some snails underneath it. And there's a video of this that you can find on YouTube if you search for um, Egbert the octopus and Alora Kuistra, search for their interactions on YouTube, you can see some really cool videos. Um, and I also spoke with a lot of uh, octopus caretakers and aquarists, both you know professionals and people who do this as a hobby at home. And professional aqu aquarists, they often describe octopuses as extremely playful, um, very interactive, and also having pretty distinct um, personalities. They seem to strongly prefer some people over others and they can squirt water at people either playfully or as a rebuke if they don't want somebody near them. Um, so they have that kind of interesting interaction going on. And there's some really interesting videos out there of octopuses kind of inventing games in the moment. Um, one time a, a caretaker was sort of pouring water um, on the top of a tank and the octopus kind of started throwing water back and playing with it. And it became sort of a, a game and ritual that they did together. And there is a there's a small but passionate community of hobbyists who take care of octopus at home because it is challenging, of course, to keep an animal of that complexity alive, um, especially in a smaller aquarium. Um, and uh, they have also told me really interesting stories about um, interacting with octopuses, and they often think of octopuses as, as social and having strong personalities. One said that her octopus learned to um, how to follow her finger pointing to different places in the aquarium where she had hit a piece of food. And that's not something that all animals can do very easily. Like it's, it's difficult for a lot of species to understand what pointing means. Um, and another um, described how she taught her octopus to wave one of its arms and they would often wave to each other. And towards the end of the octopus's life, um, it seemed like the octopus was waving, you know, almost as if it was waving goodbye. Um, but as you said, you know, that's exactly the kind of interaction that is extremely difficult to interpret. You know, it's, it's really, really challenging to know what that feels like from the octopus's perspective. Um, 
And because they are so different from us, you know, it's possible that we are reading too much into it. Um, but yeah, the the people people who spend a lot of time with octopuses, a lot of them, not universally, but a lot of them do think of them as as quite social or at least very curious and interactive. Great, Piero, what do, what do you have to to say? <laughs> uh, so. I've got some experience with octopuses in the in the lab, and from my experience, when you have the same individual in in a tank for months, you can for sure create some kind of relationship with him in the sense that the animal you can see um, the animal changing the behavior from the day he arrived in the lab from. Uh, later on, he can get used to it, and after he realizes that you are not a threat, then you provide him with food. They can be, as far as said, there's very different personalities in among individuals, but you can find individuals that are really, really curious. They won't interact with you physically or by squirting water, and they are super so as soon as you they see you they they come at the just above the water they try to touch you they try to bring you inside the tank and i'm not sure about uh creating some kind of friendship with the animal so it's it's a word that it's really tricky to use and i probably wouldn't use but for sure, the animal interact with you in a way that change over time. And he, I'm pretty sure he can recognize uh, people that are interacting with him very often. And uh, not sure about Craig Foster, but uh, surely there's, it's possible to create some kind of relationship. Uh, I wouldn't talk about friendship, and the key thing is that, as, as we said, these animals um, interact by exploring the object with their arm. So every, when you see an octopus uh, pushing the arm to, for reaching something, it's really uh, easy to project some kind of um, human feeling in it, but it's actually something that the animals do all the time to see which kind of object they are interacting with. So we have to be really careful about the, the way in which uh, we interpret stuff. Great, yeah, Ferris can attest that I'm, I'm kind of a cynic in this regard. So when I was the editor on your story and, and was really, um, you know, when I, Elora's story, uh, story for instance of the egg bird i was like well this sounds to me like he's food conditioned like he's just getting a reward and yeah. he's he's being comfortable around you and you're feeding him so it seemed like that was uh, just sort of a it would, didn't seem um like anything special to me but it, it's really it's interesting you know like i say we only can interpret things through our eyes and it, of course we want to have these you know, it's, it's lovely to think of having these relationships with other animals, but, uh, you know, we kind of also just need to let them be on their own terms. They just are what they are exploring the world and it doesn't really need to involve us necessarily other than maybe to protect their habitat and things like that. But anyways, I have kind of strong personal feelings around that. Um, I, I just was looking at your story, um, Ferris and, it, you know, uh, Connor Gibbons, <clears throat> who's a, 
at the New York Aquarium kind of talked about this and how he wouldn't use words like social or playful, but it's just more they're inquisitive, they're exploring their world. And and I think, again, we, we layer those human um, perceptions and ideas on the on the interactions. Um, okay, well, I think so that was a good, uh, good discussion. We've got a few questions coming in. So I'll, I haven't had a chance to really look too hard. <clears throat> um, somebody's asking if, if octopus are colorblind, how do they manage to camouflage themselves so well by blending into their habitats? Is it automatic or unconscious, they've asked? Yeah, that's a tricky question. So the, the their capability of changing color is controlled through a neuromuscular system. So it's like an input from the brain. It's not something that occurs automatically. And they have some layers inside their skin. This is actually quite a complicated organ. And depending on the action of the muscle, they can exhibit the, the different colors and they can perceive the differences in the in the world in a different way. So they can see shades, shades of gray and the, their system translate this in changing in their appearances, but they can perceive the differences. So an octopus can be trained to, um, to distinguish uh, stimuli that are different in color. We, we perceive it as a difference in color. They can perceive it differently in, in their way of perceiving it, but they can still see a difference. Great, thanks. Um, so uh, octopus have, this person asks, octopus has been re have been referred to as smart as a house cat. What is an appropriate analogy to describe their intelligence? Yeah, when, when I got this question, I always say that they are smart as octopuses. <laughs> <laughs> It's really tricky like when you want to do this kind of thing. They are smart as another species because at the end of the day, every species is adapted for their niches. So I guess it's important to send out the message that we, we should try to avoid this, uh, this kind of comparison. It's something that is unfair for, for both species and it's something that does not really give us a picture, you know? So it's something I could say is smart as animal X. But um, maybe it's better to think that every species is different and they have some level of complexity. They can be overlapping with other species, but perhaps let's avoid this kind of uh, comparison. It's really not useful, I guess. All right, great. Um, this is a little bit different. Um, and hard to, well, the person has asked, some people have concerns about eating octopus and what is their endangered status? Well, let's actually, how many, there's a lot of species. So what what number, how many species of octopus do we, is, are there? So there are about cephalopod, there are more than 700. Okay. And octopus is, I would say, I don't know, 200, something okay. like that. Yeah. So are, uh, this this person's wondering what's their endangered status. So I guess it's going to depend. There's so many different species. Yeah, I mean, most species are not endangered. For sure, they are catched a lot because there's many species that are eaten by so many cultures. So there's like a lot of pressure on the on the on the wild population. 
but the the ethical issue about eating or not eating these animals it's not like really related with the um, their conservation status at the moment for most species that are eaten their so their their yeah. status is is fine their population yeah. status yeah. is fine can, can with yeah i see there's a few questions about people wanting us to weigh in on the ethics of octopus farming and eating and stuff and it's not so much what we're talking about today but um yeah so but anyways they're not endangered for the most part although perhaps there are you know are some but well they're they they're they're they ha must have they have they lay a lot of eggs they must have a pretty high what do you know what the success rate of the, the reproductive rate is or i guess it's hard to know yeah yeah it's hard to know i don't have really real data Maybe yeah big yeah, so they lay these big clusters of, of eggs, but the survivorship, I guess, is, is hard to know. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, how can you explain a captive octopus escaping its tank across the floor from another tank and getting in to eat a crab? So I guess it's leaving its tank, crawling across the aquarium and into another tank to get food. But it's something that is th this octopus was doing like uh, repeatedly or is it was like one time i don't know it's just uh what person's asking how how that can be explained so there's uh, octopuses and some population in which the animal can go briefly outside the water and they can crawl on uh, on the rocks and then go like in um, in small uh, pools that are on on rocky shore so it's something that it's within the repertoire of behavior you can see in, uh, of an octopus so go outside the water for a brief um, piece of road and then go back inside into the water it is possible that if this octopus was doing it uh, repeatedly this guy actually learned that there was food in another tank and he kind of adapted his way of doing it in the wild to this captive situation. But it's also possible that the octopus escape from the tank is something that happened all the time in captivity, even with animals that are uh, used to stay in the same tank for weeks or months, they can escape. And by accident, this guy found another tank and then went there and then actually there was a crab inside and the octopus ate the crab. So it's both possibilities are valid for me. Food rewards are very powerful. Yeah. And crab <laughs> octopuses are the best they can get. So yeah. yeah. Um, somebody's asking, wondering about that. We've seen uh, octopuses social, socializing with each other. So intra-species. Um, could we see that? Is there any examples of them, other octopuses of different species interacting? Observed. For different species interacting. Um, for sure, there's cases in which the interaction is uh, functional to, to predation. So an octopus is eating an octopus of another species. But as far as I know, there is not like real report of some kind of uh, non-predatory interaction with uh, between different species. Often what happens is that when you have different species in the same environment, they tend to um, differentiate in their niche. So for instance, a species is more diurnal than the other, 
on one species staying like on the sandy bottom of the environment and the other one prefers the rocky bottom. So the overlapping in most cases is not huge, but of course it can happen. Yeah, and just because they're close to one another doesn't mean there's any social interaction necessarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so, but uh, yeah. Um, you, you jump in at any time, Ferris, if there's anything you wanna <laughs> add. Um, oh, I saw this way. Oh, where is this? Oh, somebody, so this, they're asking, it seems paradoxical that such intelligent animals, and they're using intelligent in air quotes, have such short lifespans. Is there an evolutionary hypothesis to explain this paradox? Yeah, so uh, what, what I've tried to, to put forward with the supervisors and colleagues is that it is possible that the short lifespan it's really related to the loss of the of the external shell. So within cephalopod you have the night the, the nautilus that are more, more ancient than the octopus, the catafish, and the squid, and they retain this external shell. Now these animals can live up to twenty years. The nautilus can. The nautilus yeah. can. Oh, okay. Yeah. Octopus cuttlefishes, we tend to live very briefly. So the idea is that by losing the external shell, these animals were exposed to very high rate of extrinsic mortality. This means that at some point you will get eaten by a predator because you lost your main uh, effective uh, weapon against predator. And so in this scenario, having short lifespan is something that perhaps it's, uh, it's functional, it's more useful. You get to reproduce quite uh, early and leaving a lot of um, uh, eggs instead of waiting because it's really tricky for you to, because you can get eaten along the way. So it's possible that it's, it seems a paradox, but if you think about, so if, when you think about the species, you have to look at their history, not just at the product that we, we see at the moment. So if their ancestor had the shell and then the shell was lost, this guy resulted from this process. So they are not just like animals that were designed ex novo now. So it's possible that this apparent paradox is linked to the loss of the shell. Great. Yeah, I um, think. Yeah. The, oh, sorry, okay, go sorry. ahead. I, no, I, say, I, think, I think one way to think about it is as a trade off, right? Because, you know, the external shell gives you protection, but it's also very restricting. Um, and if you sacrifice the shell, you lose the protection, but you gain flexibility and freedom that brings around the possibility of camouflage and these really long arms that can explore things and, and do all kinds of interesting things. So yeah, you become more vulnerable in the open water, but you, you can get other advantages at that, with that trade off. And are they most primarily just um, reproducing once in their lifetime? So most species, yeah, they have this kind of terminal reproduction. So they can mate several times before. And so the, when the female laid the eggs, they can, she can lay eggs of different fathers, different male octopuses. Yeah. But usually there's a single reproduction. Now, of course, we are talking about tens of species. So it's not like yeah. the very same, but most of the time it's like this. Right. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just trying to wait. We have got lots of questions here. Um, 
Okay, this is very anatomy. This is uh, for somebody who is into anatomy, but we'll see if we can answer it briefly. Um, do we know if the social nervous system, I think maybe they mean central nervous system in octopus is governed by a brain stem? In particular, do we know if they have a vagus type nerve, a cranial nerve? Is that? Uh, I'm not really into, so I, octopus brain is quite different from the, the brain of vertebrates, of course. Yeah. And so I up by lobes and they have nerves. I don't think they have this, I'm not, I'm not sure. So I'm not really the, the best person to answer okay. this. More than we, we can answer here, but I think, yeah, it sounds like the brain, the brains are very different than what this person is wondering. Um, I've got that one answered. Okay, could current environmental stressors, climate change, overfishing, be responsible for changes in social behavior amongst octopus of the same species? Uh, in theory, it's possible that there's an anthropogenic effect on the behavior of these animals. Uh, as I said for earlier, I'm more prone to think that the the cases of these like places where octopuses live together in high density are more due to the variability of the within a species. So I don't think that uh, in order to see this kind of uh, highly populated places, it's something linked to uh, some kind of overfishing or uh, anthropogenic event. But this kind of effect, this kind of uh, factor can affect the behavior of animals. So it's possible that uh, octopus behavior is affected and perhaps their social behavior as well. Yeah, I mean, as a thought experiment, it would just be kind of interesting to think about what could happen at places like Atlantis and Octopolis, because you know the, the density of the food there, the scallop beds that they're attracted to seems to be a big part of why they gather there. So you can imagine like maybe something happens with climate change or human activity that you know reduces or fragments food sources, forcing octopuses to sort of gather you know, in certain areas where there is more abundant food. And if those interactions were sustained over a really long long period of time, you know, generation after generation, that could theoretically, you know, start to influence their evolution, but it would really have to be sustained and robust. It can't just be sporadic and occasional if it's going to have an evolutionary effect. Uh, Pierre, we have a few sort of scientific uh, process questions for you. Um, so could you explain what your research will be like when you finally get to go into the field? Um, like what what would you how long what do you do to observe the octopus to um, or what, what are your plans for it? for the research, I suppose, is part of it. Yeah. Uh, in particular, because there's like very few observation in the wild. What I'd like to do is just to get as more data as we can get about the social interaction between the individual. So based on what we, we know from the leech, because these animals have been found the first time in Panama in the 70s. And based on what they have, they have reported, this, they tend to live in a colony. So there's multiple individuals living in them nearby. So what I'd like to do if, if I manage to find a colony is to uh, actually um, use underwater drones to observe the animals so that I can increase the time I can observe them just because scuba diving, you know, has like limited time. 
and uh, follow the animal during their foraging trip. So kind of getting an idea about what do they eat, how do they hunt, if they, and how do they interact with each other. Trying to building a very basic picture about this animal, confirming stuff that has been found in, the, in, the, in captivity and getting more information about this animal. And this would be the very first step. Then if possible, so if the, 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 the colony is there, I like also to, to present them with puzzle and trying to get some cognitive and behavioral data uh, about their capability, for instance, of opening jars and making comparison with uh, more solitary octopuses in the wild as well. Yeah, this a bit of this is a follow up and essentially just builds on what you just said. Like they want to know, the person wants to know why would you essentially take an animal out of its wild environment? put it in an artificial one to, that, that you have designed rather like what what can you learn from that rather than just observing them in the wild well, there's some kind of uh, tasks or of um, experimental question that are really really tricky to be uh, answered in the wild in in the lab you can control a lot of variable and this can be crucial for if you want to see, you know, I don't know, the effect of a given problems. It can be really tricky in, uh, in the wild. So if you think that research is meaningful, sometimes having a, an individual in the lab for some time is, is actually something that can allow you to answer the question. And it's not something that you can equally do in the wild. So if you, if you consider this kind of research like meaningful because it can increase our understanding of intelligence in other species, then having at least part of the research done in the lab, it's something that is crucial. It takes away a lot of the variables. Yeah, yeah um, if you think, uh, I don't know, I, I did stuff with mirrors, for instance, in the wild, and in the wild, you have the current. So sometimes, someday, you put the mirror there uh, in front of an octopus den, and you have the very strong current. So the mirror was doing like this. You had <laughs> a lot of fishes that were interacting with the mirror, but I didn't care about the fishes. I wanted to know the octopus. <laughs> and sometimes I got grouper hunting for the octopus while I was doing the trial. So the wild can be really tricky sometimes. Yeah. Uh, here's a fun one. They say, doesn't the, does the Nautilus have the best of both worlds? It's a cephalopod that still has its shell. What do we know about uh, Nautilus intelligence or sociability? Nautilus. I'm not sure. Nautilus. The, the Nautilus. Ah, the Nautilus. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so so <laughs> these guys are really different from the octopus and the cuttlefish and the squid they do not see very well as the this guy and they seem to have um, really much so they they do not hunt as the octopus and the other they tend to be scavengers and so they seem to have like a more simple biology and the brain also it's it's not complicated as the one for uh, the octopus one so it seems to be uh, like an intermediate step in the, if you think about like an average mollusks and uh, an octopus, a nautilus is kind of in the middle. So it's the, the behavior, it's more complex than, I don't know, uh, a slug, 
but it's not as, as complex as an octopus. And so it's really, really different. But this guy can, can learn, so they also can do stuff. Great. And somebody's, uh, somebody who perhaps is a giant Pacific octopus researcher just gave us a bit of info, said of about 10,000 offspring in one brood, maybe five will reach adulthood. Okay. So that helps, uh, that partially answers that question of these huge clusters of beautiful, really interesting eggs, but not many, which is pretty typical of invertebrates, right? In marine invertebrates, they're just going to make a whole bunch of uh, eggs and hope for the best. <laughs> right. Okay. So maybe we'll just do a couple more questions. We're getting, um, we're getting to the end here. Um, I think we kind of answered this, but we'll just, just to satisfy this person. Is being curious the same as being social? I wouldn't say it's the same. So it's curious can be, does not necessarily relate to another individual. You can be curious about exploring an object or another habitat while social, to be social, you need to interact with another individual, even if it's not the, in the same species, but you still need another being. All right. Sorry, I'm just trying to. Okay. Are octopus sentient or self-aware? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are one thousand dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, about self-awareness, it's really tricky. So the, 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 the basic idea, the, the, the more used test is the, the mark test. So the basic idea is that if you mark an animal in a place that you cannot directly see, so typically in chimpanzees, in elephant, it's like here on the, on the front and put them in front of the mirror. If the animal can show the behavior that are sign that he can recognize, they can be, uh, they can so self mirror self recognition and in a way they can you can increase your um, chances, that your idea that this guy can are self-aware. I don't think there's enough data for the octopus and it would be really cool to know. I don't know if we will ever be uh, able to, to demonstrate it in, in a way or not. It's something that's super, super cool, but it's also really tricky to, really tricky kind of a line of research. I think that's a good place to end because they have their own mysterious lives <laughs> that we'll never know. <laughs> but it's it's really fascinating to to try to um, uh, figure out, you know, to learn what what they are learning about their world and about their interactions with one another and what we can perhaps read into these situations where um, people are having interactions and uh that are particularly meaningful for the human i'm not sure that they're very meaningful for the octopus but we will never know maybe they are so i'd like to thank both uh, ferris and piero for joining us today um i'm sorry we couldn't get to all the questions but uh it's a little hard for me to navigate both there's quite a few and um yeah i really encourage you to uh check out the the newsletter for Hawkeye and please share the video that's uh, that will be posted on YouTube of this uh, of this online event. And um, yeah, well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.